It's a warning against having a divided heart. Um, we get warned all the time. If you think about it, if you're ever driving in a car, your gas light pops on, that's a warning, isn't it? It's telling you, you better head to a gas station soon. I haven't heeded that warning a few times. It's ruined my day. Maybe you felt the same way, right? Or maybe you get a bill or something that says you need to pay this bill or we're turning your internet off or your phone service or your water. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm gonna, I better listen up, right? Even though it's hard to receive, right? You, you wanna follow up with that, right? You wanna heed that warning. Uh, your weather app might tell you it's gonna snow tomorrow, right? It's lying to you, but nonetheless, <laughs> it might tell you that, and it, at minimum, you should not dress like it's summer tomorrow, correct, right? If, if you do that, and I, could, I keep listing examples, right, of things that we're warned about, and if we don't listen to those warnings, what happens? We might have our day ruined, right? Might ruin our day. First Corinthians 10 is giving us a warning, but if you don't listen to this warning, it's not just saying it'll ruin your day, it's saying it'll ruin your life. It's, it's a pretty big warning. Uh, what's the warning? It's telling you not to have a divided heart. When, when it comes to your faith in Christ, to not, not be neutral and satisfied, just having this divided heart. Don't try to join Jesus with other things. Well, what's the cure? What's the cure for this divided heart? Well, it's, it's actually in seeing how God responds to our idolatry. And then once you see how he's responded to it, it's responding to how he's responded to it. Uh, the title of the sermon will be on the screen is How God Responds to Our Idolatry. And in verses 1 through 10, we see that he responds by giving us examples to learn from. So our response then is to see those examples. Uh, the second thing we see in verses 11 through 14 is that God faithfully leads us away from our idols. And our response then to his response is to run, to run from them. And the last thing we see though is that God gives you Jesus to feast on. That was his response to our idolatries. He gives you his son Jesus to feast on. We see that in verses 15 to 22. And our response then is to taste and see, to taste and see that sacrifice and how extravagant his grace is for our lives. So if you're here this morning and you're discouraged, I just want to say this. If you're like, man, I just can't rid myself of this junk in my life. This is such a life-giving passage for you. And if you're here this morning and you're like, I'm just comfy and claiming Christ and doing what I want. This, this passage is a warning, but it'll wake you up, I think, if you're, if you're reading it with a posture that says God speak. So let's, let's go into this. Verses 1 through 10, we see God gives us examples to learn from. Uh, I'll just read verses 1 through 4. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So if you're reading this and you've never read the story of Exodus, if you've never read your Old Testament, it sounds really weird. You don't know what's going on here. But what Paul is doing is he's talking to these people who are not Jewish at all. They're not of Israel. They're Gentiles. And he does a really interesting thing. He's telling them about God has acted in redeeming Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. If you want to know more about this, you can go read the Exodus account. But what Paul's doing is really interesting because he's trying to marry this Corinthian church that's not, that's not Israel with the experience of the Israelites. 
He's doing this by using language. He even says, our fathers. So he's saying to this New Testament church, you are the true Israel. Right? You're a part of this thing. But then he uses these, these, in these words. He says, you were baptized into Moses. Well, they weren't literally baptized in the way that these, Corinthian, these Corinthians were baptized, but he uses the word to show them that as the Israelites were saved through walking through the Red Sea, he's like, they were baptized into Moses. And it's supposed to trigger within you an understanding that you too were baptized, right? Into Jesus. He talks about eating the same spiritual food, which he's referring to manna there, which was this miraculous food that God had appear on the ground to, to sustain the Israelites as they wandered around in the wilderness. And you too, you take the Lord's Supper, right? It's that spiritual food he's talking about, or spiritual drink, like we take this cup that, re- that represents the body of the blood of Christ. He's like, you too got spiritual drink, or they did, out in the wilderness when, when they were fed and they, they drank from this rock, right, when they had nothing to drink, right? So he's trying to marry these two experiences between what God did in saving Israel. He's reminding them, look at how God saved his people out of Egypt when they were slaves. And it's supposed to trigger within them this sort of understanding that he's, he's kind of foreshadowing what he's going to talk about with these people, He says, think about how they were saved, but then what happened once they were saved? Verse 5 gives us this like hint that things didn't go very well. With most of them, God was not pleased. So he saved them, he's not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. That should land a little bit heavy. God saved people, and then post-redemption, right, he wasn't pleased with them, and something happened. And we see now in verse 6 this transition. He begins to show us what it is, this example that you and I are supposed to learn from, what we're supposed to see, says these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of, the, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So God saved these people. And what was their response to their salvation? You see in verse 7, he talks about their idolatry. Moses is up on the mountain in Mount Sinai. While he's up there, they build a golden calf. And they attribute to this idol that they made, they attribute to this idol saying, this is the God that saved us, not giving God the glory that he deserved, right? But it's weird, he doesn't even talk about the golden calf. He talks about this, he uses this phrase, to eat, drink, and rose up and played. And that's exactly what the Israelites did at the base of Mount Sinai when they built the golden calf. He's talking about their just indulgence in in attributing and glorifying this, this fake God saying that this is the God that saved us. It's not at all. He says, what did they also do? They, they indulge sexually in an immoral way. Right? And he's referring to the story in Numbers 25. You can read about it later, where they all go out and they indulge in these sexual relations with Moabite women, and God's judgment came down upon them in a form of a plague. God judged them for the way that they acted. But then in verse 9, we, we see that they tested God, which this is a really... Um, sobering thing to think about. When the idea of testing God is that, that we shouldn't live in such a way as the Israelites did, where they were living and, and seeing how far they were able to go in their pursuit of other things before God would judge them for it. 
That's the idea of testing God. It's saying, I'm going to see how far away I can get from God, giving my life to other things. How far is too far? I don't want to go too far because I want to be judged, but I want to go far enough. I'm testing God. It's the whole idea. And then verse 10, they grumble against God. In each case that we see them grumble against God, these, these people in Israel, they're doing so because they're si- insisting on something that they crave versus just being grateful and satisfied with what God has provided for them. He's saying this is being offered to you guys as an example. It's being offered to us this morning as followers of Jesus. Or if you don't follow Jesus, as an example for a very sobering reason. He doesn't offer these up for, as examples. He doesn't say this in verse 6, that he offers them up just so that you would avoid them. It's not what it says. He's offering these examples up to you and me this morning. He says what? That we wouldn't even desire them. Not that we wouldn't do them, but you wouldn't even desire them. These examples that God gives you, God is trying to kill your desire for evil. He's trying to kill your desire for evil. Um, When I was in college, I was really bad with my money. And I've told this to a few of you before, but I, I racked up a lot of credit card debt when I was in college. Okay, I just was like, I wanna buy that. I wanna snowboard, never snowboarded. You know, I just like buy all this stuff and I was an idiot. And my parents, as my graduation gift, paid off my debt. They paid off my credit card debt. I was a free man. It was such a great feeling to know I had no debt. I had a lot of school debt, but I had no credit card debt, okay? (laughs) And I got that bill in the mail, and it said zero, amount owed zero. I was like, what a great feeling, right? They redeemed me from my debt, right? They saved me from my debt. I didn't have to experience the debt anymore. And you know what that did to me? It caused me to look back at that point in my life and go, I hate being in credit card debt. So much so that me and Liz haven't even owned a credit card since I was like 20, right? You can do it. Okay, I'm not promoting no credit cards or something. And I'm only tempted once in a while when one of you with like a Southwest Airlines, you're like, I got all these points and I'm flying somewhere. I'm like, maybe I should get a credit card. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, right? I've never had a credit card since because I look back and I'm like, that was such an awful experience of life. It caused me to hate being in debt. It would be ridiculous if they freed me from my debt and I just went, you know what? That was kind of fun. I want to go back into that. It's meant to kill your desire. That killed my desire to be in debt. That's what it did. That's what that experience did. And God redeemed them, and we see how they lived in response to that. And for us who follow Jesus, it's supposed to kill the desire because we don't want what happened to them to happen to us, basically, is what he's doing. He wants to kill your desire for evil, and we do this all the time. When we see somebody else's demise, that should cause us to not to desire the same thing that killed them, should it? Like if I went to the beach and I was going to go swimming in the ocean, right? So I'm probably not at the Oregon coast, I'm somewhere nice, okay? And uh, I'm about ready to get in, and someone's like, hey, uh, someone got killed by a shark in there yesterday. I'm going to go, I'm just going to get some sun, right? I'm not going to go in the ocean, some of you are weirdos and you would do that, but most of us would go, I ain't getting in the water, right? Because I learn from someone else's experience. I would do this in a thousand different ways. Uh, many of us have been affected one way or another by cancer, right? You know someone has a cancer. You've had someone you've loved pass away from cancer. You've had cancer. Even in a medical sense, we, we go, we look at people who've had cancer and the results of cancer, and we go, I don't want cancer, and so reports come out, and they're like, you know, red meat, eating red meat leads to cancer. And you're like, I'm not going to eat red meat, right? We, we want to avoid cancer because we know the ramifications of it. I grew up in Montana where when I was a, a, a kid, they would 
have all these ads, on com uh, these commercials that would show people uh, and the effects that meth had on them. Because there was a big meth problem in Montana at the time. And all of us would watch those videos and we're like, man, I don't want to have, I don't want to do meth. Right? We, we would look at these experiences of other people and we'd say, I don't want to do that. Right? If you're moving to Oregon and you're like, do I become a Ducks fan or a Beavers fan? You'll look at the pain of being a Beavers fan. I'm going to be a Ducks fan, right? Like, <laughs> this is like what you do if you can. Like, this is our experiences, right? right? Some of us have no choice. But nonetheless, <laughs> right, this is what we do in life. And this is exactly what Paul's doing here. He says, these are examples, these are warnings to stomp out your desire. To stomp out your desire. So if you're like, I can't be freed from this sin in my life. He's saying, look at these examples. It'll kill your desire. Number two, though, we see that God faithfully leads you away from your idols. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So he says the same thing, basically, he said in verse 6. On whom the end of the ages has come, referring to this church, referring to you and me. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So what's our response to these examples? Verse 12, he says, basically, be humble. Be watchful. Not prideful and drowsy. If you think that you stand, he says, pay attention or else you'll fall. He's saying this to the Corinthians because they were pretty sure of themselves. The problem is, so were the Israelites in the wilderness. And look what happened to them. The idea is that if you look back on how other people have responded to the grace of God, and you just feel a sense within you where you're like, oh, that won't happen to me. Or how could they do something like that? He's basically saying, sober up because pride comes before the fall. Temptation will come. That's what he says. I'll give you a personal example. I get sick to my stomach. I get terrified every time I see like a senior pastor who morally fails. And I, I, I hope I never lose that sickness in my stomach. But you know what I do? I don't ever look at that and go, how could they do that? I get freaked out because I know that guy never entered pastoral ministry thinking, I'm going to cheat on my wife. Or I'm going to abuse people with my power. I, I, I've never met anybody who's done that yet. Maybe there's a few wicked, gross people who do that. But most people don't enter into the pastorate, for example, doing that. And we do the same thing. And we can look around the whole world at Christians or non-Christians and look at the results of their actions. And we can find ourselves saying, how could somebody do that? The point is we should look at those examples and go, God, may it not be me because they're human just like I am. He's saying, take heed or else you will fall. But he gives you the power then for what to do. He says in verse 13, how can we even stand, basically? He says, well, think about it. Nothing exceptional, temptation-wise, has happened to you. Corinthians, and the same is true for us. They had experienced only what he says here is common to man. Every temptation you have in this room is common to to man. And the good news is here is that God is not a spectator in your temptation. 
But he, he's not just standing on the sidelines going, man, I hope you don't screw up. That's not what this says that God's doing. It says that God is actually concerned, he's active, and he's present in the midst of your temptations. You can count on his help because it says here, he will always make a way out. There's two really important truths here that you cannot miss. It says, overarchingly, God is faithful, you guys. He's faithful to you, and he's faithful to himself. And so what does that lead him to do? Well, it says here it leads him to protect you. It says he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That, that you see the allowance of God there. He's protecting you. That's what he's doing. He's not uninvolved in your life. He's protecting you. He's not allowing you to be tempted beyond your ability. But secondly, you also see here that he leads you. Right? He, he will provide a way of escape. This word escape literally was used to describe an army that was trapped in battle. So the imagery is of this like army that's trapped in this really rugged country, and then they find a way to escape through this impossible situation through the mountain pass. That's literally how this word was used all the time. It's used in battle. But people would escape through a mountain pass. So it's saying when temptation comes your way and you feel like there's no way to escape, how can you manage to, to get free and to not give in to your temptation? How can you manage that? Well, the emphasis in our passage is not on your strength, and it's not on your ability, but it's on the faithfulness of God. That, that's, that's how you can escape. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you're strong. It's actually because you're weak, and God is strong, and God is faithful. That's what it says here. Right? This gives us so much permanent comfort and strength. It really does. We, we escape, you guys, because God makes a way, because God is with you, because we trust in the faithfulness of God. I, I, just reading this this week, I think there's two lies that I tend to believe about my temptation. I'm guessing you do too. One lie, I think, is that we think that we are, every temptation that we have is, is so, somehow unique to us, or at least the depth of our struggle is unique to us. That's not true according to this passage. But the, the greater temptation, I think, the lie that we believe is that there's no way to ever get free. You start believing I'll never change. But there's two lies that, that we believe that, that we think it's unique, that there's no way to get free. We think that our, but the, here it says your temptation is very common, which doesn't mean that it should be tolerated. It means that you're not alone and that other people understand because sin is that pervasive. It's hitting so many people. But number two, we see that there is a way out. It's by the strong hand of God that he guides you away from your temptations. See, some of you this morning, you think that you're never gonna change. And you claim Christ and you're like, I'm never gonna change. And you think that temptation is just always too difficult to handle. You need to call that out as a lie. That's a lie. The promise is that you will change. The promise is that there is a way out, but it's through the strong arm of God. God's voice says to you this morning, I am faithful, and I'm going to lead you out. And in verse 14, though, we see that our response then to God's faithfulness climaxes here in verse 14. When Paul pleads with these people, he uses the phrase, my beloved. What he, what he means is, my dear friends, he's saying, guys, I love you. He's pleading with them. What is he pleading with them to do? He says, guys, I love you. Flee from idolatry. That's what it says in verse 14. Well, you might be saying this morning, well, I don't go to temples. I don't worship idols. 
and I would respond to you by saying, that's good, good job, okay? Uh, but idolatry is so much more, especially in the eyes of God, than a figurine, so much more than a, a lifeless object. An idol is something that you give your heart to other than God. If, if an idol is more of a heart thing than a physical thing, then that would indicate that I could have many idols in my life. Because an idol then is anything that I give worth and ultimate value and sway over my life to instead of God. It could be a good thing or it could be a downright evil thing that I turn into an ultimate thing. I'm looking to it to do what only God can do. Uh, Martin Luther, when he studied the Ten Commandments, uh, he concluded from his study that we never break any of the, the, the latter commandments unless we are already breaking the very first commandment, which is thou shalt have no other gods before me. As he studied it, he concluded that if I'm breaking seven, eight, nine, whatever, you know, he's like, I'm already breaking the first one. Idolatry then is the fundamental root of our sins and our problems. He, so he says this, he says, we don't lie, we don't commit adultery or steal unless we first are making something more fundamental to our hope and joy and identity than God. So when it comes to idolatry, the only wise action, Paul's saying, is to have absolutely nothing to do with it. Don't try to see how near it you can go, but run as far away from it as you possibly can. It's a very proactive response to God saying, I'm protecting you and I will faithfully lead you. I mean, this is a really intense word. I mean, fleeing is the exact opposite of comfortably sitting around. It definitely doesn't mean linger, you know, and you're just like, I don't know, maybe, you know, and you're just kind of hanging around, maybe not going to do it, maybe, I don't know, we'll see what happens, right? It's the idea of running, right? If you ran out of this room from something, that would be noticeable, wouldn't it? Right? It's a very noticeable thing. And so I think the question is just begged, how active are you in avoiding temptation? In avoiding it, how active are you? This pleading of Paul to us, it's so important. We saw in verse 13 that it is indeed God who is faithful to us, God who is present with us, and God who will carve out a path through the mountains, so to speak, and let us escape. But if you stop at verse 13, you would think that you just need to like passively hold on. But the way that God works through this is empowering you to flee from it. But here's the thing, you guys. You will never flee from something unless you hate it. And even if you hate it, you will probably just come back to it unless you replace it with something better. You will never flee from something unless you love something or someone more. It's, it's just a fact. If, if, just think about it. If you actually fled from your idolatry, where are you fleeing to? I mean, do you know where you're going? You'll be really frustrated and hindered in your fleeing if you don't know where you're fleeing to. You'll just start running, and then you're like, I don't even know what I'm, where am I going? What am I going to do? I think most of our struggles in fleeing are not that we don't want to flee. We just don't know where we're going, to be honest with you. I put it to you this way, it's like with bad habits. If you're like a person who you're like, I literally watch Netflix every single night, and you're like, I just, I wanna break that habit. And so you, you approach the evening and you just like turn off your Netflix and you sit there 
you're like, now what do I do? You know, I've done this for way too long. Or if you're like, I want to be freed from being enslaved to my phone or something, and you put your phone down, you just sit there, and you're like, what do I do now? Right, what are you going to do? I bet you're going to turn the TV back on. I bet you're going to pick up your phone again, right? Right? Because you need to replace it with something. You don't just stop doing something or flee something. You've got to run somewhere, or else you're going to run back to that thing. We flee from idolatry and run where? We run to Jesus. We, don't run, we run from our fake non-God to our real God. That's what we do. We flee from our powerless God, and we run to the true God. We don't run into a, a vacancy. We run to the one true God who is providing the way of escape out of the mountains. He's the one who is guiding us out, who is the rock on which we stand and the prize on which we set our gaze. And so when you lock your eyes on a Jesus, that'll stomp out your desire excuse me, your desires that creep up that we saw in verse six. Let me just practically show you how do we do this. Well, I'll, I'll quickly do this. It'll be on the screen. But uh, when you read scripture and when you analyze your heart, uh, most people have clearly arrived that we have these four core heart idols. And it plays itself out in a myriad of different ways. And if you're an honest person, you're like, yeah, I... I struggle with all of these things. So there's these idols of, of control. We want to be in control. We long to be in control. We, we're seeking comfort, which is the idea of pleasure all the time, a way of escaping stuff, right? Or power. We're trying to become someone, right? And we're trying to prove ourselves. And we'll actually, you know, use people or abuse people to get what we're wanting because we're trying to be somebody, or approval, that, that we, we fear other people because we just are so controlled by what they think about us. We want everyone to like us. These are like the four like core idols of our heart. They might not have a figurine, but they might have a screen. They might have a name. They might have a face. They might have a title. They might be found in a building somewhere or they have a desk with a name on it. I don't know. It might look like a managed, perfectly managed household, you know? They look different ways, but these are our four core idols. And so the response is this. I don't just walk into my house and go, man, I'm struggling because I want my kids to behave perfectly and at peace, and I just want to control my environment. I don't say, I'm just going to try to refrain from doing that. I need to run to my true God and realize that God is so great that I don't have to be right now. And I cling to him and his ability and his involvement in my life. I don't just go, I'm going to try not to escape today and seek comfort and pleasure in things that just destroy me. No, I turn to my true God and I say, God is so good that I don't have to go looking elsewhere. And I'm going to believe that and experience that. Or I can go, you know what, I'm tr I don't want to try to keep being somebody and and use people along the way and, and whatnot, I go, no, God is so gracious that I don't have to prove myself anymore, but I receive my true identity that no one can take from me. I don't have to prove myself anymore. I don't have to seek to be somebody. I already am somebody because Jesus has made me somebody. I don't have to seek approval. I don't have to fear other people anymore because I look to God and I go, God is way more glorious. He's the most important person in the room at all times. And he approves of me fully and finally. He loves me. That'll stomp out my idol. That'll cause me not just to hate my idol, but to know where to run.
So why should we live this way? Well, there's no dual citizenship in the kingdom of God. There isn't such a thing as a Christian polytheist. There's no feast hopping. There's only one feast and one God, and we see the biggest way that God's ever responded to your idols is this. He has given us Jesus to feast on. He's given us Jesus to feast on. Remember the Corinthians prided themselves on their wisdom. Do you remember this? And so Paul appeals to it. He says, you guys are sensible people. Verse 15, I speak to you sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do you see people that you are feasting and participating, he's saying, in the blood and body of Christ. Paul is referring here to the cup and bread that we enjoy as followers of Jesus when we take communion, the Lord's Supper. We remember Jesus. We're participating in that sacrifice. See, it's important to realize here that something very significant, that communion, which we take every week, guys, it's not just like a spiritual ritual. He's saying this is an act of faith. It's an act of belief. He's saying, I believe this. And you, once again, you're experiencing and enjoying the extended grace of God to you in this moment. You're participating in the sacrifice of Christ. Participating means that you're receiving in some ongoing way the means of God's grace for you through his son, Jesus. That's, that's why we say, just very humbly, and, and not because uh, we're trying to be mean, but we say if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't received his grace, if you haven't placed your faith in him, then we, we respectfully ask, we, we have this on the screen, we just say we respectfully ask that you do not take the Lord's Supper. That's not because we're trying to be mean. We're just trying to say it, it's not a spiritual ritual that you just take and it maybe helps you in your life a little bit. We're saying, please refrain, because when we take this meal, we're saying, I believe this. I have experienced the grace of God. Jesus is my everything. You've been baptized into his name. And now in this ongoing way, as a follower of Christ, when you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying, I believe this. I receive this. I participate in this. It's like um, if uh, Beaver basketball, we're doing really well, second place, go Beavs. That's right. If um, I can't just say I'm on the Beaver basketball team, I can't just go out there in my, you know, gym outfit and be like, I'm on the team today. I can't do that, can I? But if I have the uniform, if I go to practice, if I'm sitting on the bench, if they sub me into the game, I'm participating on the team, aren't I? And it's my participation that I'm showing everybody I'm on this team. That's exactly what Paul's saying. If you're taking this meal, you're participating. You're saying, I'm in this thing. I'm on this team. You don't just sub yourself in and out. But verse 17, more than an individual act, he says our feasting in verse 17, our participation, it's this unity declaring thing that we are a part 
of one another, that there should be no division amongst us. So you have this church in Corinth, and they're all going and worshiping their other idols. It's really disunifying. But if we come together and we're like, I give my life to Jesus, that unifies us. See, that's what unifies us in this room. What unifies us as a church is not our affinities, it's not our seasons of life, it's not our personalities, is it? It's Jesus and only Jesus. And it's this meal that we take together every week that shows and displays that unity. And if we really are saying, Jesus is my everything, if all of us are doing that, talk about unity, right? So he's saying, I can't take this meal and while I'm taking this meal, be planning my next exit to go worship my idol. I don't take this meal and I'm like, yeah, in about an hour and a half, you know, I'm going to go to this other feast. That's what he's saying. He says, consider the people of Israel. He says, think about them. And the weird thing is, the next sentence, he doesn't even say anything about them. He says something about the Corinthians. He says, think about those people and look at your own life. Do you see how you're doing the same thing? Paul basically says to them in verse 20, do you see that these people that you're going up and worshiping with, they're offering these sacrifices and you're participating in them. They're offering them up to demons and not to God. I don't want to be, you to be participating with other demons. Verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't be a Christian polytheist. There's no such thing. You can't take some Jesus here and some of that idol there. Why? Because that so-called God, you guys, he's not worthy of your worship, and that so-called God didn't do for you what the one true God did for you. That idol is nothing. It didn't sacrifice for you. It makes you sacrifice for it. And your one true God, the one true God, he, he calls you to come and remember that he sacrificed for you. It's very different. You're remembering the sacrifice every week at the communion feast that we have, yet you're going and feasting on other things the moments after. This should hit home for us. Because whenever we look to something to do what only God can do and be what only God can be, we have an idol. And when we give ourselves to our idols, that's not a neutral thing. There's no neutrality in this passage. It's not only not God. Our passage calls it evil. It calls it demonic. He's like saying you can't double participate Whatever it is that you're worshiping, it's not just this casual, neutral thing. He's like, see how divided your heart is. I, I love, um, I just think about it this way, okay? Um, uh, like the idea of uh, being a musician versus being on a basketball team, like I was saying earlier. I, I don't know about you, but I love getting on Spotify and listening to people's music and just browsing around, and I always click on bio, right? And you read about someone's bio and Every single person, it'll be like, this person's a singer-songwriter, but they're also in this band, and they did this project with this person, and they're just kind of like going wherever, making music with whomever, playing songs, creating songs, playing shows with one person, then another person. That's just how music works, right? And we go, that's cool, that's awesome. But in basketball, it's very different, isn't it? I can't just be on one team, and then when the other team starts winning, I'm like, I'm going to change my uniform. And you go over there and sit on that side. In the middle of the game, you're just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You can't participate in multiple teams. He's saying you guys are basically viewing yourselves like a musician. You just participate wherever you want. You're going after all these people, adding it to your resume or looking, saying, look how free I am or whatnot. He's like, you're, that's not it. When you're taking this meal, you're saying, I'm on the team. You can't just then go and like whore yourself after other things. That's not what this meal represents. You're missing this meal. You're not understanding what Christ has done for you. 
This, this feast is something we taste. God's inviting us to taste and see how good he is and it reminds us of the sweet and costly grace of God. Guys, this table we come to, it's the climax of our worship service every week. We, we, we see in verse 21 how Paul refers to this communion table as the table of the Lord. And the table in the Old Testament, he's doing this intentionally, the table in the Old Testament was actually a reference to the altar, which was the center and climax of Jewish worship. And that table now, he's saying, has been replaced with the Lord's table. Uh, our, our passage is showing us, guys, do you see this? That the reason why there could be no Christian polytheist is because I can't take this meal and say, I praise you, Jesus, for uniting me to this people and giving me a future and a hope that one day you'll lead us to the ultimate promised land. I can't do that and then run to another altar because I don't need to run to that altar. And if I run to another altar, the one I just drank and ate from didn't mean what I said it meant. He's challenging them to think about this. Paul's saying, come home, stay home, stop, stop living that way. And the big warning comes at the end, verse 22. Why? Because God is a jealous God. You want to provoke him to jealousy. Are you stronger than he is? These are rhetorical questions. The answer should be, especially if you read the examples he gave, like, no. No way. Why would I keep testing him? This is all a reference, actually, to Deuteronomy 32. It's this song that Moses sings right before he dies. It'd really do you well if you read it this afternoon and meditated on this further. But we see in, in Exodus 20 that God self-reveals himself as a jealous God. And that's a good thing. What he's saying is there are no rivals, there are no equals to who I am. We see the Bible describe him as, as a good husband who's faithful in pursuing of his wandering bride. See, we often think of jealousy as a sinful thing because we experience it when we're being selfish. But it can actually be a wonderfully good thing. Like if, you're a, if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse and they cheat on you, you're hopefully not feeling like, eh, whatever. You have a feeling of jealousy. Why? That's, you love them. And you've entered in this relationship with them. Right? Or, if, or if somebody flirts with somebody that you love, there is jealousy that comes out of you, isn't it? But it's not because you're being selfish. It's because you love that person and they've said they love you. Jealousy is a good thing and it's actually God's jealousy for his own glory that has preserved his people, that has redeemed his people, that's caused them to be led out of temptation, that has caused him to be faithful. So those who would put God to the test by insisting on their right to do what Paul says is idolatry, he's saying basically what you're doing is you're taking on God and you're challenging him by your actions. Don't do that. And if you really want to understand what this looks like, uh, just think about last week and how we looked at verses 24 through 27 of chapter 9. He says, you won't receive this eschatological prize. Instead, instead of doing that, he says, receive, bask in how God has already so graciously acted towards you. Taste, feast, that's what you're doing. He's rescued you and set you free so that you wouldn't be enslaved. 
He was tempted in every way like we were without sin, Hebrews tells us, so that his perfect life and sacrificial death, we could be people who could face temptation. He offers us himself to feast on and never hunger or thirst again. That's the promise of Jesus, so that we wouldn't go and destructively feast elsewhere. So I just wonder, are you trying to be? Are you comfortable with being? A Christian polytheist. I have all these gods in my life. And I'm cool with it. That's one of the greatest ways we avoid doing this. That you find actual freedom from your sin. is through our weekly communal feasting. It really is. This is why I need Sundays. I need Sundays. It's through taking the supper together and believing and tasting and seeing the sufficiency and preeminence of Jesus in our lives is to taste and see, to remember, to feast. Now, have you ever tried to go to a grocery store when you feel like you're starving? Have you ever done that? It's a bad idea, isn't it? You come home with all this stuff, and you're just like, what am I doing? Or maybe you've pulled this before, you start eating it in the store or drinking it in the store. That's when you're like, I have a problem, right? I mean, I should take better care of myself. I was really hungry yesterday for lunch, and my friend who's living in the nation of Turkey right now, he sent me a picture and saying, I'm eating this right now, and it was a sheep's head. And I was so hungry, I looked at it, and I literally was like, that doesn't look bad, <laughs> you know? But then later I ate, and I was really full, and I looked at that sheep's head again, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's gross. Like, that's a sheep's head, right? Uh, I was hungry, and then I feasted on something else, and I looked at that thing, and I was like, that's not... That doesn't look good anymore, does it? He actually said it was good. I think he's, he's got bad taste in food. But um, anything looks good when you're hungry, doesn't it? But when you've eaten something good, when you've eaten something healthy, something tasty, something sufficient, and you've feasted on it, sheep's head looks like sheep's head. You won't walk into a grocery store and buy everything because you feasted. Paul says, don't desire evil. Don't fall into temptation. Flee your idols. Don't provoke God to jealousy. How? By turning your eyes on Jesus. When he becomes your desire, when he's the ground that you stand upon, when he's the God that you flee to, when you feast on him and you taste, what he's done for you. You'll never hunger again. That's the cure for a divided heart. Nothing else will do. Let's all stand and pray. God, you are beyond gracious to us. God, I was just, man, I just felt really overwhelmed, God, this week, this weekend, this morning. Lord, when I think about my own life and just our lives as a whole, as a community, just how comfortable we are just giving ourselves to so many things. God, give us eyes to see as we ought to see. God, I plead with you this morning.
that we would know that you are a jealous God and that that would be just so good to hear. God, that we would see your faithfulness in our lives, even when we aren't looking at you, even we don't notice you, God. You're there, you're providing a way out. God, may we not desire things that you hate. God, may we, may we desire you. And I pray, God, as we respond right now through singing and through prayer and through taking this meal once again, that we wouldn't do so lightly, God, but our hearts would soar with worship for you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all respond.